Today's show is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash jhk and using promo code jhk. Hello and welcome to the Kunstler Cast. Thanks for listening in. I've been reaching out lately to some figures and voices that we haven't heard from before, and today's guest is Catherine Ingram, the author of In the Footsteps of Gandhi, Passionate Presence, and A Crack in Everything. Since 1993, she's led public events internationally called Dharma Dialogues, as well as retreats focusing on secular ways of inducing more wisdom, service, and well-being in one's life. She founded and is president of Living Dharma, an educational nonprofit organization, and she serves on the boards of the Burma Project, a human rights group, as well as Global Animal, an animal rights organization. Catherine is not exactly what you might expect. A spiritual seeker since the 1960s who spent many years traveling around Asia, she rejected the search for, quote, enlightenment, for a more direct mode of simply being in the world, of connecting with our gratitude for living, a way that she calls passionate presence. All right, so here I am with Catherine Ingram of the Dharma Dialogues. What's Dharma, by the way? How would you describe that for our listeners? It's a Sanskrit word, and it's one that I've lived with for about 40 years. I have often thought of dropping it because I don't like having any affiliation with anything religious. But it usually means something like the underlying harmony of things. So I keep the word just because I actually have that definition for myself, that it's um, an interest and a focus in how to find, you know, a sort of stream of, of ease through any situation. And uh, it's, you know, supposedly wisdom-based in that regard. Well, that's an excellent description of something that the world can use, and that, especially in our chaotic culture. Um, and you mentioned something, um, which leads me to ask you, uh, your message might be easily uh, misconstrued to the casual listener who who really isn't familiar with you, because while you had broad experience and, and you've, you've had a lot of contact with teachers uh, in the Buddhist traditions, you're not at all uh, a seeker after enlightenment, as it's commonly understood, or nirvana, or some ideal state. In fact, you're kind of against that as a practice, uh, in favor of what you uh, simply call passionate presence in the world. So, can you describe the state of mind that you think is worth working toward? Well, um, first of all, I, I just don't even have any belief in these ideas such as enlightenment or nirvana. Um, you know, it's, it's not that I dismiss them as a goal. I think it's a fool's errand because nothing like that exists as far as I'm concerned. Um, what I recommend is not so much going upstream towards something, um, but rather floating downstream. So, in other words, to really relax in every possible way, and that that is what is most conducive to your well-being and to your functioning in the world in a uh, in a nice way, in an intelligent way, and in in a uh, connected way. Um, 
So it's, it's actually not any kind of striving or practice or having to know some kind of philosophy or learning anything in particular. Um, it's all about resting in ease in beingness and feeling the gratitude therein. Well, it's interesting because the search for nirvana and enlightenment has been a real theme for our generation, for the boomer generation. Yeah, and uh, it's just futile. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what you think uh, that struggle has wrought for for uh, our homies, shall we say? What are what are the consequences of all that kind of wasted effort? <laughs> well, probably not too bad, actually. I mean, you know, it's of all the endeavors on earth, it's not one of the worst. Um, but you know. If one is lucky, you discover sooner rather than later that it's a lot of um, struggle that's not going to lead really anywhere um, and that the the direction you're going is the opposite direction. That as, soon, as long as you're feeling that something about you needs to get fixed or changed or improved and all of those kinds of things, there's going to be an internal tension. Yeah, and it, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, Eric Byrne, the psychologist who invented, I suppose is the word, transactional analysis, which led to the whole idea, you know, I'm okay, uh, uh, you're okay, yes. or I'm not okay, and you're not okay. Yeah, exactly. So yep. for, the, for boomers, just about everybody is not okay. <laughs> right, yeah, starting with themselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it, it's um, you know, this is just, I mean, really what I emphasize in my work is how to use your attention. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing with your mind? Given that you can move your attention around, and not everyone can, not everyone is, you know, not everyone is um, able to just focus on what they want to focus on. Some people are mentally ill. Some are so damaged in life that they're they're just in a constant nightmare. Um, you know, there's a, there's a few exceptions, but most people actually can direct their own attention, but don't really do it. So my uh, premise is that you can use your own attention, direct it at will, uh, not every minute of the day, but a lot, and calm yourself down, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get to that, I think, but I want to back up a little bit. Okay. And, uh, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your preparation for what you're doing now for the Dharma Dialogues uh, uh, program or, or activity that you that you do, and uh, tell us a little about uh, a little bit about your travels around the world as an eco journalist and encounters with uh, people you have regarded as teachers. Well, I, um, you know, in the nineteen seventies, um, I became interested in, in Dharma practice, specifically Buddhist meditation in those days. By the way, I left that in 1991, um, but I was in it for 17 years. And um, Did you leave it, it in a tumultuous way, by the way? No, no, it fell away. Okay. It just gently fell away. I could no longer maintain either the beliefs, um, and Buddhism is not laden with beliefs like other religions. It's a non-theistic religion, for instance, which was helpful because I never believed in any kind of God or anything like that. But, uh, you know, and it's often been referred to as a psychology of mind. Nevertheless, there were beliefs embedded in, in Buddhism, such as rebirth and reincarnation and karma and all of these things. And all of that fell away. In addition to this very intense mindfulness practice, um, which 
after a point, after 17 years, I was so bored with and so weary of, of mentally noting my reality, which is what mindfulness practice is. Oh, it's, it's sort of like footnoting every thought, thought you have. That's exactly it, like footnoting. Not only thoughts, but sensations, breath, everything. So that became tiring and tedious. And um, I got the picture long before I stopped doing it. But I was in a culture of friends who were my best friends and who I you know, love to this day. And it was my community at that point. So walking away from it wasn't that easy, but it did, the whole thing did fall away. So, um, but along the way, during those 17 years, I also had to make a living. So I became a journalist and I focused on issues of, you know, social action and, um, and, you know, environmental issues and all of those kinds of things. And in combination with what you could loosely call consciousness. In other words, I was interested in people who were doing any kind of action from a base of wisdom. And to that end, I, I interviewed about 100 people, and I put together a book uh, called In the Footsteps of Gandhi many years ago. Um, and I wrote for a lot of magazines in those days. And it was sort of my way of designing my own education and having mentors that I could pick myself. And oh, it was, you didn't go to college. I didn't go to college, no. Um, you're not embarrassed by that, are you, me saying that? No, not a, a, no, no, not at all. Uh, it might have actually been an advantage. I don't know, but um, I don't know if it was or not, but I did pick my, get my own curriculum, and, and um, you know, so anyone I wanted to study with, I had access to as a journalist. As you well know, you yeah. get you get access. And back then, you know, people would answer your phone calls. Absolutely. You could get to pretty much anyone, yeah. you know. And, <laughs> you know, so um, I would just travel wherever I needed to go to, you know, to be with these people and spend, you know, not just, not just one one-hour session, but kind of hang around for a bit, you know. So, and then study their lives really, you know, intensively in order to write about them. So those were all the sort of luxuries of those days of journalism. And um, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was a great education. But tell, me, tell us about the places that you went, and, and especially what it was like for a young American woman to encounter such strange cultures in such far-flung parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, I went, when I was 24 years old, I went overland from Italy to India, and I spent a year over there, um, but I went through all these countries that we no longer can go through. <laughs> Pakistan, Iran, you know. Well, it was dangerous then, and I didn't realize that I was so young and naive, um, and I didn't, you know, I just wasn't aware of how, um, I mean, there was one time in Afghanistan when this, you know, this kind of, this guy that looks like a, you know, a desert creature guy, uh, like out of Star Wars? Well, something like that, yes, yes. Um, just, it, like out of central casting, as you could imagine, sort of an, a tribal Afghani guy of those days, came up to my boyfriend and offered him a thousand camels for me. And, <laughs> and he was serious. The guy was quite serious, you know. And, they, and he was trying to negotiate, and he had a translator. And, you know, my boyfriend and I just laughed it off as hilarious. But I look back on that and many other moments of that trip and realize anything could have happened in those days, you know, anything could have happened. Um, anyway, we just, you know, we had the luck of 
and and the ignorance of, of youth. So any close <laughs> encounters with real danger? Yeah, a few. Yeah, yeah, a few. Sure. What was India like? Back then, it, no, in the 70s. 70s, yeah. Yeah, 76, when I first went. I went 10 times, Jim, uh, over the course of those next 20 years. Uh-huh. What was it like it, in those first times? It was very much preserved. It was old India. You know, you're riding from the airport, and there's a couple of elephants in front of you on the road who are, you know, hauling stuff right. with their riders on top of them and New Delhi itself I mean there were hardly any taxis uh, you know little motor rickshaws but um, you know there were only a couple of places to stay Uh, and then you got off you got out of the big cities and it was just rural old India like you know from a thousand years ago Um, so it was really enchanting in a way it's like landing on another planet and it was you know in those days I had the feeling that I would die in India, that I would go back there to live out my last days. But unfortunately, you know, one of my girlfriends said it well. She said it used to be you'd step off the plane in India and you'd feel you were stepping into the past. But now when you step off the plane, you feel like you're stepping into the future and, and not, a bright, not a bright future. <laughs> yeah. Well, you uh, also became involved through your uh, your journalism and your travels with the enormous planetary eco issues of our time including you know the disruptions of climate and the peak oil and peak resources issue and population overshoot issues yes and i'm wondering how how do you think that our collective state of mind in our culture right now today um, applies to that set of predicaments? Well, of course, our culture is uh, self-obsessed. And, you know, it is the cult of the self here. And and that shows up in the consumption and in the, uh, the ignoring of anything that might impede the greed orgy that has been going on for a long time. Um, and the willingness to ignore whatever wars have to be fought to keep to keep the whole project going so um i'd say it impedes very heavily on you know and we we've had a we've used a disproportionate number uh, amount of the resources put a disproportionate amount of the carbon into the atmosphere and so on um you know american culture as a single culture has been most responsible for the um destruction that we're now witnessing and the potential extinction we're facing. Mm-hmm. How does it reflect on our collective state of mind? Well, I'm sorry to say it doesn't seem to have made much of a dent on anything positive. It's, it's the orgy is continuing, you know, and it's um, seemingly getting worse. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm dismayed by, I have to say, I'm dismayed by the whole intensive focus now on the sense of self and on the aggrandizement of me, the big me project that everyone lives with. I was in Venice last fall, and I was, uh, I was noticing that there are now these selfie sticks um, that, that the hawkers, that the, the vendors are all selling so that people can have a stick that holds their camera so that they can just kind of walk around 
and film or, or photograph themselves in front of a building or, or whatever, you know, a tourist site. <laughs> Selfie sticks, they're called, literally. You know, um, I mean, I was thinking maybe we'll just all just have you know, a, a selfie stick attached, like where, you know, on a extending from a hat that we can just film ourselves. Every a minute. hat? Well, we might evolve to, you know, have one <laughs> kind of grow out of our shoulder blades. <laughs> and what's so ironic about this is that this, this building up and, and, you know, worship of, of the self and of the need to project the self into the world is so depressing to people. It turns out that there's some new studies that are quite interesting that are showing that people who are on a lot of social media all the time uh, have a higher degree of depression. And it has to do apparently with the way that people um, compare, social comparison, you know, that you're constantly mm -hmm. looking at the fabulous lives that these other people are having. Of course, they're not posting their downsides just as you're not posting right. your horrible moments or the, you know, the day you fell off your bike or whatever. Um, and, you know, so there's this, uh, this skewed sense of, of lives being lived that you're not living. Uh, but it's all part of the same illness. Really. Yeah. Which is kind of a, a, a real perverse torquing of reality. Completely. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it, it leads me to wonder about, uh, well, it seems to me that the distractions of daily life uh, have only become worse. Anybody have trouble sleeping over the years? Well, I have. This podcast is sponsored today by Casper Mattresses. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. The mattress industry has insidiously forced customers into paying notoriously high markups. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to the customer. A Casper mattress provides resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort. A new hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. It's that simple. Lying on a bed for four minutes in a showroom has no correlation to whether it's the right bed for you. That's why Casper has turned the buying process into a risk-free experience. Casper understands the importance of truly trying out a mattress that in all reality you spend a third of your life on. With Casper, you get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. You get just the right sink, just the right bounce. Two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, come together for better nights and brighter days. You get a risk-free trial and return policy. Try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. Casper mattresses are made in America. Prices range from $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. Compare that to industry averages. That's an outstanding price point. So if you've been thinking about changing your sleep infrastructure, also known as your bed, go to casper.com slash JHK and use the promo code JHK to get your $50 discount toward any mattress purchase from casper.com. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you mentioned a moment ago uh, being, in, you know, being in a foreign culture uh, and, and yet having all these wars going on and... Um, I remember very vividly 
in the 70s uh, thinking, uh, feeling the cognitive dissonance of uh, looking at the nightly news about Vietnam and reading about it in the New York Times every morning, and yet the, uh, 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 just the enormous normality of everyday life in America just going yeah. on. And that hasn't changed much. In fact, except, it's probably it, gotten except, worse. Except that now we hardly see it on the evening news. I mean, exactly. even, you know, in the, in the days of Vietnam, we would actually see the bodies coming home in bags and, and the monks, you know, lighting themselves on fire. But now it's this, you know, you have to kind of, you're looking more at the alternative news to see the, um, the truth on the ground uh, of these wars, this endless war we're in. Well, excuse me for harking back again on, on the 70s, but um, you did spend so, many, so, uh, so much time in foreign lands and uh, really strange foreign cultures. And, and w- what was your reaction to American culture when you had to re-emerge uh, into it and re-engage with it? Yeah, cu- coming back to America is always when I have culture shock. I don't get it when I go elsewhere. Yeah, isn't that weird? <laughs> it is weird. Yeah. No, you see it. You know, you see it so much more in contrast when you go away, you come back and see it. Um, I mean, what can I say? Uh, it, it's, I find it, you know, very difficult here, honestly. I, you know, I... I it turns out that, you know, my oldest relationships and friendships and students and my family, they're all here. So I'm here for that reason. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm not really a fan of the country per se. I mean, I'm not very nationalistic in general, you know. I don't really have all these, um, you know, I don't have that kind of inclination anyway. Mm-hmm. Um but I do notice there are other cultures in which I feel just inherently more relaxed and more at ease and more sane and that I'm in a more sane collective consciousness when I'm in those places. Well, uh, considering where we are now in our culture, in the, the, the culture of hyper, super, turbo connectivity, uh, we seem to have gotten to a point where it's virtually impossible to find a still moment in a day. Yeah, in, in well, which has, to to you know really reflect on uh, being present. Yeah, I mean it has to be an intention, you know. And again, it's about how you use your attention to have as part of your intentionality of the day be that you're going to pay attention and you know relax and be present for your beautiful life that is slipping by. Do you think that Western culture promotes noise and clutter? Yeah, it promotes discontent. Uh, that's how they sell us things. They convince us that we sure. need them in order to be happy. So it's the absolute opposite of any kind of real happiness. That, you know, contentment is never mentioned. Never. Um, it's, a, it's almost like an old-fashioned content, concept, isn't it? You, you hardly ever hear it. Yeah, I don't think that there's room for it in our current culture. You know, between uh, the selfies and the Kardashians mm-hmm. and uh, everything else, there's, there's no and, space. We've left no the, space for it. And the race to acquire and the race to, you know, to get more in order to have, you know, some sort of status or power or whatever people perceive, fame or, you know. So, um, you know, it's, it's a constant motor, a constant drive, a constant hunger. Like, it's just hungry all the time. And... And uh, it's the opposite of, 
of well-being? Well, what, um, what we might identify as a kind of desperate seeking of sensation uh, and incessant seeking of sensation is also something which I recognize, or at least I identify as being a species of depravity mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it raises the question, really, um, are, are we numb? <laughs> is that is that why all this uh, sensation seeking is uh, necessary? Are we absolutely numb and paralyzed emotionally? Uh, you know, in the aggregate. In the aggregate, in 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 Western culture, and yeah, specific- and in the USA in particular. Are we numb? I mean, you used the word earlier, distraction. We're extremely distracted. You know, mm-hmm. we're we're, you know, that. Um, Neil Postman book of many years ago, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Right. Um, and it's why we pay the people who distract us the best. We pay them a lot of money. You know, we pay the movie stars and we pay the big athletes. Anybody who can take our attention away from, <laughs> you know, what's happening here gets paid a lot of money to do so, you know. Um, but are we numb? I, I don't know. I mean, I suppose... Yeah, in many cases, certainly. You're one of those who um, takes a very serious, has a very serious view of the the climate disruption mm-hmm. yes. situation. Yeah, I, I've been studying climate science for a while. Very, very depressing uh, hobby. And, and it, yeah, it occupies quite a bit of your thinking. Yeah, it does. It does, Jim. I mean, it's the biggest news story probably ever in history, and it's not really getting the the ink it deserves or the or the digital bites it deserves. Uh, although it's nice that the Pope came out <laughs> the other yeah, day. I, you know, I'm not, I'm, I've never been religious myself, and I'm certainly not a Catholic, but I must say it struck me as a pretty big thing. Yeah. In fact, uh, one of my colleagues in the new urbanist uh, world, you know, the, this group of architects and developers and people who would like to um, reform the way that we uh, develop the human habitat, um, sent me the extracts of the Pope's discussion of, of uh, basically of urbanism and urban design. And, mm. and, you know, it was so right on. He could have been a founding board member of the <laughs> Congress for the New Urbanism. Nice. Yeah. E- even going as so far as to recognize that it's actually important for us to have some order and beauty in our world. I know. Isn't that amazing? Isn't yeah. that an amazing thought? Yeah, that is. And the fact that people probably reacted to that, you know, with with anger, like how dare he promote the idea that we should have some uh, uh, beauty and order in our world? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what right. happens to all the wig shops and the strip malls? Yeah, and the pawn shops and the gun shops. Um, right. I know. Well, but anyway, about the climate. Yeah. The climate. I mean, I I think that we're going to start hearing more and more about how very dire the situation is and how little there is really to be done, unfortunately. And so there's a certain way in which a preparation of how one uses one's attention is very necessary, I think, for the coming phase. Yeah, tell us how you think people might um, contend with, with that, that problem and their, and their own attitude and disposition about it. You know, it's going to be, I mean... It's not too dissimilar from uh, being in hospice, you know, that it, when you're looking at the possible end uh, or the imminent end, um, 
what do, how then do you use your time that remains? You know, what do you do with your mind? What do you do with your heart? You know, and so um, I, I say it's good to get used to a, an intelligent way to proceed you know, as soon as possible, don't wait till the emergency hits, you know, good, good to do while you're able to have, um, you know, running water and food at the grocery store, um, you know, to find ways to calm yourself down, find ways to be more content so that in fact, you can live without a lot of stuff, you know, that you start appreciating little things. Um, you know, there's, um, on a relatively new song of Leonard Cohen's called You Got Me Singing, there's a, there's a stanza, You got me singing, even though the world is gone. You got me thinking that I'd like to carry on. You got me singing, even though it all looks grim. You got me singing the hallelujah hymn. <laughs> and, and I love that, you know, and it's kind of how, it's kind of what I apply to, um, how I'm proceeding, which is, it does look grim, but it throws in high relief, you know, the beauty of this day and the sound of the birds and having this conversation with you and, and gratitude, you know, for, for, for this. Well, you know, Keith Richard, uh, who is also sort of a member of our boomer generation, yeah. the musician, he made the following observation. Uh, when he was uh, coming on stage for a performance. He said, it's good to be here. It's good to be anywhere. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, we like another day above ground, you know. So, so uh, how, does the, how do you keep cool when the world is on fire? <laughs> um, well, I use my attention. There are times when I have moments of panic and depression. Um, you know, I have a bunch of little great nieces uh, who are pretty adorable and all under the age of eight. And, you know, I love them very much and I think about their future. I, as for my own, I, you know, I've kind of, I've got far less time ahead than there is behind and I'm pretty okay with that. Um, but um, there are moments when I feel very, very shaken. Um, and, I then use my attention. I bring it into reality where I am in the moment. I let those thoughts, I don't fight with the troubling thoughts. I let them go by, you know. They're, they're welcome to come and welcome to go. And I, I have a sense, I have a kind of trained habit of a sense of spaciousness of my awareness. So... Anything that comes in is usually not taking up the full screen or the full sky. Mm -hmm. Does political leadership matter? And uh, how would you account for this moment in history when our political leadership seems to be so lame? Well, I mean, I'd, I'd say the most horrible aspect of it is that, that you know, our leaders are now purchased. They're... They're just bought. Actually, they're, they're rented. They're rented, exactly. <laughs> they're rented, exactly, yeah. And cheap, cheaply, <laughs> by, right. uh, you know. I, I, went, I was once hearing, a, I once heard this piece on This American Life in which they were doing a show on how the lobbying thing works. So I had imagined that these congressmen are just being hammered by lobbyists all day long. It 
was very interesting to discover on this show that congressmen are going to the lobbyists. Oh, really? They go to their offices. They're, they're the ones call, making the calls and yeah. saying, listen, there's a bill coming up and blah, blah, blah. And I know you're, you know, you're with the Louisiana oil something or other. And I mean, it was so ridiculously horrifying. Um, and, and of course, then you go all the way to the top where now it takes, you know, billions of dollars to an elect American president, mm -hmm. president. And, um, so, you know, the whole thing is, it's all part of a piece, you know, it's a species problem in general. Uh, you know, I would say as a political matter, though, there, there is a process that occurs that in one way or another mitigates that. And, you know, it, it's the process of losing legitimacy. And I think we're seeing yeah. that right now where, uh, in essence, the people lose their faith and trust in institutions and the people who represent those institutions. And, and as it reaches a certain pitch of the, you know, the kind of vile corruption that we're seeing all around us now, um, things happen and things break and people break and groups of people mm -hmm. uh, start to uh, uh, develop a kind of violent opposition to what they've been subjected to. Yeah, I think that's, well, we're certainly seeing that in this country. You know, it's, we barely get through a week without some horrible not even a week, a few days, every few days, you know. And um, and I think that there's another insidious component, which is that there's a, there's a semblance still of democracy, you know, that there's a, this sense that people are, even though we don't vote, it, like only 20-some percent vote, but, um, but there's this belief that we're living in this free country, in a democracy, yeah. you know. And uh, so there's, there's not much hope of a revolution when you're pacified in that way. Yeah, I, I suppose a corollary of that is, um, you know, if you believe that, then you, we're getting what we deserve. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Nicole Foss, who is a very interesting figure out there in the, um, the, the counter culture or the, the non-legacy uh, internet news uh, arena, she writes for the Automatic Earth, and, and she's had an idea that, uh, you know, there's such a thing as the trust horizon. And as a culture such as ours gets into more and more trouble with authority and, and the legitimacy of institutions, that the trust horizon actually gets lower and lower and lower until, you know, you can no longer trust your government, you can no longer trust, uh, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve or the, your college president or, you know, any other authority figure until finally the trust horizon really only extends to your local community and the people around you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's an interesting point with regard to how we proceed going forward, which is, again, in the use of attention, there is a, um, a heightened sense of connection with, with your local community. You know, there is more, you, you feel yourself more embedded in, in, uh, in a local life. And I think that that's, a lot safer um, way to live for all kinds of reasons, psychologically and practically. Mm -hmm. Well, you conduct your Dharma dialogues on a regular basis, and you do it in various parts of the world. Um, and I I'm wondering what your observations are. And, and the Dharma dialogues, they take place generally in a meeting hall of some kind, or a large room, or an auditorium, or some something like that. And 
<clears throat> it's not merely you just talking to the audience about something. It's, it's a dialogue between you and the people who have come to see you. And, and I wonder what your observations are about the states of mind that you are encountering these days uh, among the people who come. And, and what does it tell you about the current cultural conditioning? Well, it's interesting. This is an interesting conversation. I, I am experiencing that there's more anxiety running through um, people, right? It's just more anxiety is, is in the rooms. But usually not being attributed to the, the global and political and environmental pressures. It's almost like that's sort of this background noise that is heightening people's personal problems and sense of insecurity. Um, I'm very much connecting uh, that, those two things that, you know, we're just being hammered with scary news every day on the, on the, you know, if you're paying attention to the scary news. Um, and, you know, you're, and as you're writing about, um, you know, Europe, Europe may be about to fall in various ways financially, and it, that's going to spread. And people are struggling here, despite the uplifting economic news, which is nonsense. Um, you know, middle-class people who are becoming the new poor are struggling. And so there's the, there, are all these, there are all these different um, um, pressures that people are feeling, almost on a kind of subliminal level, that is like a constant drip of poison, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there, there, there's a lot more sense of, like I say, anxiety is the word that gets expressed a lot in, in my sessions. So do you think that uh, uh, our fellow countrymen and women are living in a toxic soup of culture? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I mean, you know, I mean, we can point to some happy occurrences, you know, the, there's some social pro- progress, of course, and we like that. But, um, but yeah, I think the general trend is, you know, this is, we're going to, we're headed into rough, rough, rough waters. Well, let's, let's talk about uh, the, your ideas about awakened presence and, and some of the components of it. For example, we touched briefly earlier about the selfie culture and, and uh, the uh, lack of satisfaction that people find in that. And that would seem to raise the question of uh, our sense of genuine, genuineness, of, mm-hmm. of actually knowing who we are and feeling comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think that it's so difficult for people to uh, feel good about themselves, feel okay about themselves, and feel that they're actually being a genuine persona? Well, of course, a lot of it is cultural conditioning. You know, my friend Helen in Norbert Hodge has spent a lot of time in Ladakh over the many years, and she points out in her books and films that that culture was really happy. People felt that they belonged. People had their place. Where is that, by the way? It's, it's on the Tibetan plateau. It's part of India, but it's, okay. it's really like, it's more Tibet now than Tibet is because the Chinese took, took over Tibet. But Ladakh is a very old culture that was pretty identical. You know, these, they're living on the same high plateau as the Tibetans. But um, um, 
it has been infected, as so many places, by Western culture. And so now you can really see this contrast whereby people are now saying that they're poor and they're not as happy because of this whole comparison thing, you know. They want the toys, they want the big screens, they want all that stuff. And a culture which had formerly been very happy, like like we hear about Bhutan, you know, where they measure their gross national happiness, you know. Um, it, it, it's a cultural infection. And, and our media, uh, specifically American media, which is probably the most powerful advertising media ever in history, has projected on all these screens around the world this, this myth. And it's very, it's very contagious. And so I think that when you grow up in a culture where more is the name of the game, more, 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 and the aggrandizement of self, all of these things which are inherently leading to unhappiness, <laughs> you know, um, it's quite a setup for, you know, for, for a very disenchanted culture, but, but which one, one which can't analyze its own illness. Uh, it's interesting you should mention that because what, one of the themes in the World Made by Hand novels that I've been writing is, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of collision between two different states of mind, between a demoralized, discouraged, and disappointed enlightenment culture of the West, um, because in those books those people have been let down by science, technology, and all the promises of the baggage of the Enlightenment. And a, a view that sort of uh, represents the re-enchantment of the world. And, mm. and I've actually um, represented it in a Christian cult that's come along in, in the story. And I'm not religious at all, and I'm certainly not an evangelical, and I'm certainly not a southern e evangelical. But... <laughs> Yeah, none of that seems like you. <laughs> no, it isn't. But but I was interested in the opposition between the uh, the view of the world as as being enchanted in some way, and and the process of getting to re-enchantment, and the dropping away of so many of the illusions of the baggage of the Enlightenment that we carry around with us, mm -hmm. and and it's. I don't want to make it sound like I'm against science or, or you know, free inquiry or, uh, or you know, prov provable theories or any of the, the things that are commonly uh, used to determine what's real and what's true. But I am concerned with what the effect of the failure of that is going to be because I do think people are going to be very disappointed by the promises of, you know, technology solving all of our problems. Technology is not liable to solve the climate change problem. It's so far only promised to make it worse. Absolutely. Yeah, all the geoengineering stuff is truly scary. It'll just speed, speed up the end. <laughs> but yeah. let me ask you something, because I, you know, I love the idea of this re-enchantment, uh, you know, after after the world is gone. <laughs> um, well, or, or, or just or the, the trappings. Yes. But um, do you think it'll go that way? I mean, do you think that, I mean, might it not become just pure barbarism? Well, the World Made by Hand novel uh, task, uh, you know, this, this job of writing these four books, um, had an agenda, which was to present 
a, uh, a changed way of life that people would find okay, that they, they, could, they could read uh-huh. about how these people lived mm-hmm. and they wouldn't think that it was the end of the mm-hmm. world, that it was the end of civilization, the end of humanity, although it was very, very different. different. And I was really interested in how people would, would contend with these things at the practical level of everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, in the background of these books, there has been a great deal of um, turmoil and, and uh, uh, war and um, conflict. But in the world uh, that, that we're seeing in the small town, um, that's really kind of not directly in the picture. Mm-hmm. So you're offering this as a kind of model of inspiration, in a sense. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, as opposed to some, you know, Mad Max version. And, yeah, and by the way, pa- I consider Mad Max to be absurd because it, all those Mad Max movies have amounted to nothing more than one big car chase. No, it might look something more like The Road. Well, I don't. I wouldn't even. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the that's the usual uh, default image. Mm-hmm. And. Um, I guess my point is that um, I don't think that we're going to go to that place. I think we're going to, I do think that the human race is resilient and that I, I think the, the planet itself has more resiliency than, than we might imagine. Um, so um, I, I'm not, I wouldn't argue necessarily the science of uh, you know, carbon in the atmosphere being a terrible thing. Well, the meth, uh, and then the triggers of all the methane that's being released, which is eighty to a hundred times more potent, a greenhouse gas, and and the issues are going to be at a certain point of heating, the plants are going to die. You know, I do happen to think that um, the techno-industrial world that we're living in is going to seize up more Mm -hmm. rapidly than many people think, and that uh, we're simply going to stop doing a lot of the activities that, you know, that, that are doing that. Now, you, you've made the point that that may not necessarily at all change uh, the consequences that we're faced with. But, um, but I think it will be a kind of an interesting interplay between those consequences and, and what we can do to take ourselves where we're going to take us. And mm-hmm. you're obviously very concerned with that just in terms of how we manage our minds, our thoughts, our emotions Yes. In, in the face of that. Yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, why don't we conclude by, by me asking you, what are some of the most important ways that we can behave mm-hmm. and, and manage our, our daily uh, mental lives uh, in the face of the problems that we've been talking about? Mm. Uh, well, first of all, I would say to cultivate a sense of gratitude an attitude of gratitude. Um, I would also say to be of service. Somebody said, somebody famously said that um, action absorbs anxiety. So to be of any kind of service in small or great ways, whatever is, whatever is possible, um, kind of takes the focus off self and also dims, it dims the fear actually, because you're, you're engaged in, in a way that feels good. Um, I'd also say to, as part of the gratitude, to really be in love with your life and by extension, life itself, you know, so that you're walking more gently on the earth. Um, To not indulge scary pictures, you know, even though they arise, not indulge them, not, not 
become fascinated or obsessed so that even though they may float by, as they tend to do if you're paying attention to the news, um, you don't follow the thoughts too too much you know you bring you bring the attention back into your lived reality of the moment which is obviously near at hand um and uh and also a an internal acceptance even though you do everything you can to foster the greater good um it's like here's a he can close with this um, W.S. Merwin has a beautiful line uh, from one of his poems. On the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree. Hmm. So you're, you're kind of, you're always affirming life. Where can listeners find you on the internet and, and some of the Dharma dialogues? Uh, they can go to my website, katherineingram.com, and there's lots of stuff to listen to, and we've also launched a new podcast uh, series so there's a bunch of podcasts and free stuff that they can listen to online and you're and there's also, also the, there's also a ton of YouTube stuff as well okay and you're the author of the book Passionate Presence Seven Qualities of Awakened Awareness and the novel A Crack in the World no A Crack in Everything I'm sorry A Crack in Everything and also In the Footsteps of Gandhi uh, that's a collection of your journalism uh, from the days of uh, traveling around the world, talking to interesting people. Yes. So thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I'm a big fan, as you know. Well, I'm a big fan, too, and we will ride again. <laughs> okay, dear. Okay, dear.